Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to read and preach on the, the second half of it, verses 11 through 21, but I want us to get it in its full context. I know that means you've got to stand up a little bit longer. You'll be all right. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat upon the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together. For the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those 
who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword who proceeded from his mouth, I'm sorry, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Thus far the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we come to you. And our desire is that the glory of Christ might be made manifest as it was in the days of old, in the destruction of Jerusalem, when your will was so clearly revealed and the conquest of those who allied themselves against you that this work of judgment might continue, that you might, O Lord, cause us not to be afraid of the kings of earth, but to take every confidence knowing that our king is the king, and there are no contenders to the throne, and though you were once manifest in humility, In the weakness of human flesh under the law, you now sit above the clouds. You sit upon the throne. You ride upon the great white horse. And you will bring your wrath upon those who do not seek salvation by the work that you have accomplished on the cross. And Lord, work in us then humility. Trust and dependence upon you. We ask this then in your name. Amen. This morning as we come to the word of God, we come again to another terrifying scene. It is a scene that has been building for the whole of the book of Revelation. And what we find that John's apocalyptic visions building two are really in fact two great feasts there is the marriage supper of the lamb and there is the feast for crows and birds of the air there is the feast of those who have been laid waste by the righteous king of heaven and earth who are even here eaten by the birds of the air And this is where all men are headed. Either they will sup with Christ at his table, or they will drink, they will drink deeply of the wrath of the wine of God. This morning as we look at this text, we see the one who sits upon the white horse, who rides forth in and to victory, firstly, and then second we see Satan and the kings of earth falling. Satan and the kings of earth falling. Let's look at the first point this morning. Christ rides forth in and to victory. Those prepositions are important. Christ rides forth in and to victory. Now, thus far you have seen and heard a rather explicit position that I've taken from this book that is often referred to as 
partial preterism. That is the idea that as we look at the unfolding of God's revelation in this book, the book of Revelation, John is writing about events that are soon to take place. He says this in the early part of the letter that were sent to the churches in Asia Minor, some of them suffering greatly, some of them faithful, one in particular unfaithful, though appearing to be righteous, this being the church of Laodicea. And he's writing those churches to give to them some understanding about events that are yet to take place. And that is the fall of Jerusalem and Christ's righteous judgment upon that city that is later referred to here in this book as the great harlot. Now the harlotry of Jerusalem is essential for us to understand and what it consists of. For millennia, God has pursued the Messiah, Christ who would be called Jesus in the Gospels, has pursued Israel as his beloved nation. It began, of course, with that, what is often called the proto-euangelion, which is just a fancy way of saying gospel. Proto-gospel, the gospel in seed form. Genesis chapter 3, where God says to Adam and to his wife, there shall come one, born of a woman, that Satan will crush his heel, but that son, born of a woman, will crush the head of the serpent. That is the messianic, the first messianic prophecy. And then later, God comes to Noah. He comes to Abraham. He comes to David. He comes to Moses before David. And he names or reveals in greater clarity over time just who that Messiah will be. And throughout all of that, the body to whom God made promises and gave the law and expressions of divine covenantal affection were the Israelites, those born of the seed of Abraham. But not only of the seed of Abraham, for we know that when Israel left Egypt, there were those who were also of other nations who were brought out of Egypt with Israel. It was always meant to be that Israel was to take the gospel in its seed form, in their call to holiness, in their receiving of revelation, and to take that revelation out into all the world. Now, what Israel did not have in the Old Testament was the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we find after Christ's ascension, which is why we have the cleanliness laws. Though Israel was to be a light, they were to be a light in how they were distinct. Don't let the world in. And of course, what changes with the giving of the Holy Spirit is we as saints are to infiltrate every corner of the world because now the fellowship of the Godhead dwells in us. We are the leaven. At one point we are to avoid the leaven that is the world. Now we are the leaven that is meant to bring salvation to the world. And so this bride that had all of these promises and glorious covenantal expressions of Almighty God rejected all of that so that when the Messiah comes, 
Their hearts were so darkened by their sin and rebellion and in their trust in and leaning upon the Roman Empire, an expression of satanic power on earth, the Jews put the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to death. And for this great sin, Christ is judging Jerusalem. And this judgment of Jerusalem took place in history a little less than 2,000 years ago in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, which was a clear sign of God's disfavor. So that when we see Rome sacking the city and we have read the book of Revelation, we're going, oh, this is more than some socio-political conflict. This is God judging Israel through an unrighteous nation that he will later also judge. All right, all of that prelude aside, what we find in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, is Christ riding forth against Jerusalem and in like fashion all of those nations who would mock his lordship as it is expressed not only in his incarnation but in his rule and reign through the church. We have the privilege at times of being mocked as Christ was mocked. And so at the end of that first section, perhaps maybe that's the way it reads in your Bible, verses 11 through 16, there is a title that he wears upon his, ro- his robe and his thigh, and it reads, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the last time that Christ was in Jerusalem... And there was a sign placed above him. What did it say? King of the Jews. And this was Rome's way of mocking Israel. This is the best you've got? Oh. The Bible is full of paradoxes, of ironies. And in this, we find such an irony. That the one who was killed, put to death by the bloodthirst of the Jewish people and those of the Sanhedrin who stirred up the people to rebel and reject the word of God, made flesh, the eternal Logos, John chapter 1. Now he comes back to the city. He comes back to that city that rejected him and he wears the title and the honors that they should have bestowed upon him. The word of God here in Revelation 19 rides forth. And he rides forth on a white horse. Now we've seen this already. I've made this point already. It was many weeks ago, several chapters earlier. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 2, John looks and behold there is a white horse. And the one who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. That the first initial act of Christ's righteous judgment on earth as a kind of type is the judgment of Jerusalem. Christ, the eternal Logos. Verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. 
He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called, or is called, the Word of God. It is the revelation of God. It is the pinnacle. It is the high point. It is the nexus of all of God's revelation, and it is made manifest in this person, the second person of the Godhead, the one whom we rightly call the Word of God. John, the same writer, speaks of this in John chapter 1. And the word was God, the word was with God, he was with God in the beginning, the eternally begotten Son of God. And when the word of God, the light of God, came into the world, the darkness sought to but could not overcome him. They did not understand him, and they could not overcome him. And it is through the word that God made everything. And it is through the word of God that God the Father remakes everything. The creator is the recreator. He is the firstborn of all creation. It is he who is able to open the scrolls and begin to, as it were, unfurl, reveal, revelare, the will of God for human history. And Christ does this as prophet, priest, and king, as the ascended one who sits upon the throne, Christ manifests God the Father's will for human history. And he does so now not as a suffering Messiah, not as a sacrifice, but as a holy priest, a powerful king, a present prophet. He rides forth in battle, first against Jerusalem, So let us look at some of the ways in which he is described. Well, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It is a garment of his own sacrificial glory. And it is not only blood that was shed, his blood, but it is here evidence of what he has come to do. He has come to ride forth to judge and to shed the blood of others. A wrath and judgment grounded upon his own death. What this means is that the cross is not only that place of great mercy, it is also that place of clear judgment. So that when you and I go forth into the world and we preach the cross of Christ, that is how all men are judged. How you have or have not responded to the offer of salvation through Christ Jesus and the cross. That is where we must go, because that is where our sins are dealt with. That is why when we come to the table, we preach Christ's death until he comes. We remember it, because that is the place where our sins were nailed to the tree. His name is the word of God, of which I've already elaborated to some extent. His eyes are like flames of fire. He sees holy. His sight is perfect. He judges men. Not as men judge men, but as only the righteous judge of heaven and earth. He not only sees, but he brings clarity. He refines, he exposes. If you think you can hide from your sins by fooling men, these are not men of eyes of flames of fire. 
For Christ sees all. He is the great judge of all the earth. This should bring, for those who are unrepentant, great terror. For those who have repented, there is no reason to fear. But for those who are not, for those who have not, for those who remain in their sins, this description of Christ is meant to be terrifying. And it is terrifying. And on his head, you will read... That it was not just a crown like there was in Revelation 6-2, but now crowns. The crowns of those saints brought to him in worship and the crowns of those kings that he conquered. I take your crown and I place it upon my head. Christ wears the crowns of those whom he has sovereignly taken rulership over either by grace Or by judgment. There is a way for kings to do this. And that way is laid out clearly in scripture. We've seen King Josiah doing this in the Old Testament. When the word of the law was discovered. King Josiah in his life and in the reformation of Israel. As they took the holy king's law. And sought to implement it in the life of Israel. In essence took his crown. And gave it. To the Lord. And what he was in essence doing is saying, I am but a king under the great king of heaven and earth. When we pray for our political betters, what are we praying for? What ought we really be praying for? That whatever authority, whatever responsibility, whatever crown they have, they would devote and give to Christ. Do you feel that happening? Do you see that happening? Pray that it happens. Because what is the result if it does not happen? You become feast for the crows and the birds of the air. So, we see the word of God riding forth, and we see this principle made clear in these first few verses, that the word of God will rule. We see him riding forth along with the armies of heaven. Now some commentators, as it relates to the armies in heaven, see it only as those who are earlier mentioned in the book of Revelation. That it is not the saints doing battle with Christ because this refers to Christ's judgment of Jerusalem. There are still some other commentators who belong to that sort of preterist camp who would say that this refers not only to Jerusalem, but also extends to the end of human history. That there is not only a a people watching Christ ride forth against Jerusalem, but when Christ calls the apostles to be the foundation of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, They too are brought into as the army of God, clothed in white, riding upon horses, going forth into all the nations. And through the ministry of the word of God as Christ rides forth beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem to Gastonia, to Botswana, to Indonesia, and to nations that I don't even know the names of because there are like 200 countries in the world and I couldn't list them all. All tribe, tongues, and nations, Christ Christ is going there. And he is riding his horse there. And he is through his spirit, through the work of the church, bringing an established rule. Now, we look at that and go, 
When? And the answer to that question is already. And the testimony of that is seen that we are here. Not only that there are people here, but there are actual craftsmen who devote themselves to the business of building pews. Or flooring. Or roof trusses. All of this, both souls of men and women and children, and the stuff that is used to build buildings where we meet, is all evidence of the Lordship of Christ not decreasing, but expanding. And if we measure the kingdom by our own small lives and not the whole of the church, we will become quite discouraged. In fact, at our latest What's Brewing, we're in our membership, or attendance went from one to five, so next week I'm expecting 25. I don't know if we'll get to 125. We talked about what feels like the vanity, to use the words of Solomon, that a single act of faithfulness, it feels vain. And it is small. So then we are confronted by a, a moral dilemma. To do the right thing looks like it may cost us more than it in fact is an investment in the building of the kingdom of God. It costs me my whole life, but it feels like, well, this is what my dad would always call his pay. My dad is an attorney in a law firm, and all the hours that he bills, he would say, it goes to the black hole. The black hole which everybody else gets paid out of. It often feels like the things that we do for the sake of the building of the kingdom of Christ, just like that paycheck on Friday that's gone by Monday. <laughs> Where'd it go? Well, the beauty of a sovereign God is that none of those little pieces are ever lost. And they all come together and are part of Christ riding forth to take dominion of the world. And so he rides forth in victory because of the blood that he shed, and he rides forth to victory because it assures him and us that we will be successful in this mission that we call the Great Commission. And it results in what? It results... In the wrath of God visibly seen. We see it in Jerusalem. It is very clear. And we see it throughout all the earth. Pierce Shelley in his poem, Ozymandias, speaks of this. Of the great kings of earth. And the statues that were erected to them. They get swept away in the wind and dust of the desert. And it's just a pair of legs. Where's Nero? The beast of Revelation. Where is he? I mean, how many of you even heard the name Nero? Kids? Okay, you can raise your hand if you want to. <laughs> Most of you did, probably because, you know, you're homeschoolers or something like that. But, or just Christians, or you saw Left Behind or something along those lines. 
But who is he? Where are the great kings and emperors of earth? Where are they? Where is their power? Where is their influence? They are but nothing. And their likeness is found in statue, bit by bit, wearing away. Go to Rome. The great pyramids. All of those things built to exalt man. And they cannot stand. They stand for a while, but they do not stand forever. And no one knows who's actually buried there anyway, unless they go dig them up. But Christ's reign is eternal. And the church, through Christ, has a sure and eternal foundation. And then here at the end, as I've said already, upon his robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king. Oops. We got it wrong. And the reason I say I think this is also has some measure of application to us and to the future is the way in which the humiliating term of king of the Jews is seen to actually be king of kings and lord of lords and especially to those who put him to death. And we read of this in Revelation, I mean, sorry, the book of Romans, of the remnant of Jews that will return is that those who are awaiting a triumphant Messiah in zero at the time of Christ and his birth will come to embrace the glory and the title of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because they see his exalted nature in and through the testimony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where my post-mill personality shines forth. You may not agree with me, and I'm okay with that. But there is much conquering left to be done, and Christ will be victorious as he rides forth. You and I may fail. There may be circumstances where churches are, in, we endeavor to plant a church, and that church folds. Little local outposts. But there are Christians in China. And not just a handful of Christians. But the church in China may, by some accounts, outnumber the, those who are professing Christians in this country. That Christ is no respecter of ethnic boundaries of persons. He wants every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he will not let Satan have them. Because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And what do kings want? They want territory. And they rightly, rightly ought to expect it. Second point. Let's move quickly. <laughs> Satan and the kings of earth shall fall. I thought about splitting the sermon into two parts. And maybe I should just do that. But we see a vision of fallen kings here. In verses 17 and 18. And it is a meal that is meant to contrast the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which would you rather attend? One is a glorious, a glorious scene of gathering where Christ, through his shed blood and his power and his grace, brings men to his table and they eat of the delights 
of the grace of God, manifold mercies in their, in their presence. And then the second meal that we see are the corpses, the rotting corpses of those kings and those of the army, not named by Christ, but named by the beast, who are laid out upon the ground and they have been there for such a time that the birds feel free to come and eat. Now, one of the things I rarely get to see when I come to this, my study, I don't know why it happens here, but I remember seeing at one point there were 50 vultures sitting on one of these trees back here. And let me tell you, that's a, a bizarre sight. And my first sentiment, my first thought was, who died? <laughs> or what died? Because they're looking for something. They can smell it in the air. And you've seen birds like that. I want you to have that image of the beak peeling away the flesh. It is a slaughter. It is the slaughter of those who have not made peace with the King of kings and Lord of lords, but have refused that peace. And so he in his righteous rule and reign rides forth against them. So you've heard that saying, if you've ever been afraid of public speaking, what you're to do when you look at the audience. When you're afraid of the kings of earth, those who ally themselves against the king of kings and lord of lords, I don't want you to think of the other thing. I want you to think of this. Who are these men? They are but men. And their power lasts, it may last a hundred years. One empire, one family, 200 years, 300 years. But we are talking about the eternal one, the alpha and the omega. We are talking about the purposes of Christ that will ripen fast in their due season. And what we find, not only in the laying low of Jerusalem, but in that a type of what will come to all those who refuse to bow themselves, to bow their knees, to fight against, to be in league with the devil, those of the beast and those prophets who gave the beast power, they will be captured, they will be banished, they will be killed. We get to talk about this in apologetics today. (laughs) These imprecations, these visions of destruction. Who is judged? All of those who do not bear the name of Christ will be judged. They will be cast off. And so that word here, lake of fire, is Gehenna. That is the eternal dwelling place of those who do not bow the knee to King Jesus. The beast is captured, the false prophets who work signs in his presence, that is Rome, and those Jews who, who in essence authorized the evil works of that nation by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, all of them cast into the lake of fire. Our God is a righteous God. And if these sights appear to be too much, then we have forgotten the God that the Bible actually reveals to us to be the true king. This is not the God Satan wants you to believe in. 
In fact, one of the great tools of the devil is for those who are his children to get the character and actions of their God wrong. Is this not what he did with Adam and his wife in the garden? Did God really say? Is he really like that? And he turned their hearts before they even realized. He turned their hearts against the Lord. Let us not be that kind of people. Do you know what I mean? The kind of the kind of Messiah that marketing companies present to us in the children's story Bible. This is why for years I have always disliked the idea of VeggieTales. How do you capture Revelation 19, which you shouldn't anyway? What kind of cucumber kills We have taken Christ off the throne of heaven and earth and we have sought to make him marketable to idolaters and to children. I'm not saying children are idolaters. I'm saying that there are things that even our children need to understand to be true of Christ that they also should want from their fathers. What father would stand by if something horrific was happening and not exercise power and vengeance and wrath in the face of great atrocities. This is a Christ who is king. Where is this perspective gone? Maybe it is due to the fact that the world is at times so wonderful a place to live that we love the very ones who would be our captors. We have a hard time pointing the gun at those who would steal our souls. And we see the ungodly less as robbers and thieves and more as those who bring us some kind of salvation. Like the woman who did not know that Satan was actually there to pick their pocket, steal their soul, wreck their lives. She believed he was there to offer her something. And what did Adam and his wife get in return? Well, we see it. Perhaps each generation loses their will to fight to pray for the glory of Christ to be seen in the judgment of the world, to find that part of the conquest of the kingdom to include something we're not willing to do or to pray for or to long for. Perhaps it's because we've stopped singing the Psalms and Hillsong has taken over. And I don't mean just Hillsong, but that whole kind of category a kind of personal piety that looks good on Instagram but is not ready to endure the challenges of the world. Brothers and sisters, our Christ, our Lord is risen and if he is risen, he will ride forth in victory and he will judge the nations. This is what Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. He will tread upon the ungodly like a man treads upon a wine press. And this is our king. And one day, when the fighting is over, when the church is no longer militant, but all the church is triumphant together, we will rejoice because Christ is that kind of king. Let's pray.